Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Fitness Podcast. Guys, thank you so much for all your support, all the messages during lockdown. It looks like it's coming to an end. The restrictions are easing up and I'm so excited for this guest. I've been following this guy for a long, long time. His name is Phil Lurney. He is at the PT Coach on Instagram. He's a fitness industry educator, founder of Advanced Coaching Academy, and it's his no BS approach. And sometimes it's tangents that make him the person that he is and also makes him the person that a lot of fitness industry people want to kind of dig down into and get the get the, the information from so phil thank you so much for for coming on today you're very welcome absolute pleasure how are we holding up in the weird time that we're in <laughs> we're, do, we're doing all right we're uh yeah it's it work for me isn't isn't that dissimilar uh there's there's a little bit less in the way of traveling to meetings and things like this which is uh, you know how a lot of my time is spent nowadays but i still a lot of my time is spent with content watching with the weather as it is today it's uh you know i'm still in an office and still you know i'm, I'm mildly sweating here with with every window in the office open but uh but yeah it's, it, it hasn't changed that much for us you know my, my wife works from home she she looks after the kids from home and stuff and uh and the kids you know we we talked about it briefly before about the you know the, the kids are having homeschooling uh so they they log on in the morning the the, the school do it very well and uh yeah so it, it's nice having them around they they, they put their heads in now and again so it's uh it's cool having them around that's awesome because i think i well, obviously we we're talking off air as well i've heard horror stories i've heard good stories as well about home education but you seem to as a person who works in education you seem to have a massive so <laughs> yeah, you have it so uh, if we weren't getting it right however it's a slightly different <laughs> thing te- teaching you know your 11 trigonometry than it is uh teaching people about uh, you know body systems and anatomy and physiology and business stuff and blah 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 but hey yeah exactly and what do you find more interesting teaching the kids or teaching the pts the pts <laughs> i was never you know i was i, I was always very hands-on at school I, I wasn't terribly academic uh the the academic subject was something i, I kind of grew out of at about the age of 13 i was very good at them early early on and then i just, just found them a bit boring so i didn't really apply myself terribly on you know obviously i ended up doing you know a science degree but it was you know, it was it was a slightly uncon you know unconventional route to it. I think it was. Uh, you know, I went. I did a level PE. I did a level art. I did a level design. I did a level general studies. It was, you know, so so it was all, it was all very hands on stuff. Whereas my, my my sister is she's very academic. She did English, science, you know, maths, all that kind of carry on. But but no, I, I I always look back and think that if I went back to school, but went back to university now, I'd absolutely sail through it. I think when when I wrote the academy, which was uh, you know the original one was six years ago, uh, I wrote the equivalent of three doctorates in less than six months. So it was all reference and everything. So it was it, yeah yeah different ball, but, but yeah I thoroughly enjoy the, the the PT stuff and it's all it's all applicable and you know certainly to do with coaching. It's nice to dip my foot into that world again as a as a coach. And then obviously a lot of my stuff now is the business side of operating fitness businesses and things like this. So, so yeah, yeah, it's all fun. It's it. Like I'm gonna get you to kind of explain your story a little bit because I know I've heard your story from various different. I've been following you for ages, and I listened to your most recent interview with Lift the Bar, which is incredible as well. I think I get you to talk about your moving from the the face to face PT where you're extremely successful to growing an amazing business uh which i cannot thank you enough for yeah it's uh yeah it was 
I guess it was a conventional route, but it's, it's a slightly different route to I think the one that people go down now because uh, it was a slower process. I mean, you know, when I first started as a PT, it was well when I first started as a fitness instructor, which was how it all began. Uh, it was you know it, it was always something I wanted. To, well, it wasn't always something I wanted to do, but it was kind of the I always wanted to do something I enjoyed. And I always wanted to do graphic design. So I studied to do graphic design for a long time. Uh, I actually did some work experience. And at the time, graphic design was migrating from people, you know, putting pen to paper to people sitting on computers all day. And it was the first generation of Macs. I don't know if, if you know, you, people will remember them, but they had the, the whopping great day glow backs on them and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I went and did some work experience in graphic design, product design, and interior design. And, and it, I just found it incredibly boring and wasn't very savvy with computers. So then the other thing I enjoyed was sport. So it was, you know, my, my intent when I first started was I wanted to deal with professional athletes. Then that kind of, that kind of t- took a tangent really because the routes into working in professional sports at the time were non-existent. Then the UKSA turned up and, and that became the channel to move into professional sport. And then it slowly dawned on me that there wasn't much money in professional sport as a coach, uh, which which brought me on to something further down in my career. But, but yeah, it was. I, I started off as a fitness instructor. You know, I used to do inductions, used to hand out towels, used to do pool tests on the pool that we had. And you know, uh, if you're on the late shift, I'd have to be. I was referred to, and I, I think this always stood out in my mind. You have to turn turn uh, bags, uh, carrier bags, inside out to pull all the pubes and hair out the trains and i always remember that as a real sort of humbling moment where i was like okay this isn't maybe as glamorous as the thought it was going to be so so it was so that was and then i pushed the company that i was at to actually introduce personal training they never they never did it as a as a thing it was you know people were asking me could i coach them privately and blah 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 so i proposed then they they allowed me to do it after a bit of stern pressure from me i threatened to leave if they didn't let me do it. So uh, they let me do it and then ended up helping them launch that across the entire group. And, and it went from there, really. Uh, worked worked as a PT from then on in and you know worked in various places, commercial gyms, non-commercial gyms, private gyms, and ended up, I was actually going to leave uh, leave London after a few years of PT in London, one of the, the, the sort of premier gyms in London because they weren't permitting me to, to grow or develop my PC business. I was basically locked down as to this was your hourly fee, this is how many hours you can do. You can't really do much outside of that. And and that was it really. And, and I planned to move to the US. I started playing American football so I could get a, a, a grasp of the sport itself. Uh, and, and that was all part of the move, was to learn a little bit more about American sports from a hands-on perspective and move across the America. And then I had a chat with Nick Mitchell, who at the time on Ultimate Performance still does, and and he offered me a role as director of education there. I was in the midst of doing my own educational stuff, which was the it was actually in the Phil Learning Performance Education at the time, and then and then from that developed the the coaching academy. We we kind of gave up on the UP education uh, because Nick was too busy opening gyms, I was too busy doing my own educational stuff, and we decided it was a better and more mutually uh, you know beneficial decision to to just go the separate ways with that so i continued to coach out of out of up as a you know i was one of the uh, one of only two i think freelance trainers that they they ever allowed to use the place uh there's myself and ollie foster and you know i I got my own clients i you know brought new clients in from other coaches a lot of the time because i didn't have any room 
and yeah, it went from there. And then then decided a few years ago, I can't remember how many years ago now, about four or five years ago, to retire from personal training, which, to be fair, probably should have done two years before that. Uh, just had an allegiance towards my clients, just felt really bad just leaving them. And then when I did, they were all, they weren't, weren't happy to see me go, but they were, they, they got it. They, were, they understood that it was a career progression and a business-based decision. They were all very high-end business people and, and they got it. So they supported me throughout it. And then that brought me to where I am now, which is, you know, we, we have the academy. We've got, uh, I actually just had a message off one of our designers, some of the asset material that we do for coaches. We've just surpassed 2,000 subscribers to wow. that, which is neat. We've had around about 7,000 people through the academy since we launched. So in various uh, courses, so we did the business course, the nutrition and the coaching, but we've had 7,000 learners through that since we launched, uh, which is around about 1,000 a year, which is cool. And and yeah, that, that that's really where my time spent now is, is the educational stuff, is the, you know, making people aware of what we do and how we do it. And yeah, driving it's, the business from that. It's, a, it's an incredible story. And it's, I think a lot of people now are, potentially having to adjust to new situations people don't know where i know the gym that i was working out of uh before i went fully online was they've let go of the pts and a lot of those don't know what to do a lot of them are trying to go online but there's a lot of people there's a lot of noise out there on social media have you got any advice for anyone out there who's potentially stuck in that rut whether they want to go back to face to face or how to make the transition to go online if that's what they want to do it's tricky because it's you know it's a pivot. It's a very it's a very swift pivot in a different direction. Uh, and, and there's always this assumption. And to be honest, the, the internet doesn't help because you know social media, particularly social media, blows the whole online coaching thing up as this incredibly lucrative, easy, uh, you know, manageable process. When in fact, it actually isn't. You know, we uh, we launched some online coaching as the academy. And bear in mind that at the time, I think we had about five and a half, six thousand members. And social-wise, there was nearly quarter of a million people on our social channels cumulatively uh, at the time when we launched it. So, so I actually did it as a bit of an experiment because we wanted needed to get under the hood of what running an online business looked like because it was something I'd never personally done. Uh, I dealt with a lot of businesses that did it, and there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff with online coaching which is just logical business. It's just good business practice. It's it's about a service. It's about how do you deliver that service. It's about economy. It's about efficiency. It's about uh, you know, what are the things you can and can't do? And it's determining that, you know, a lot of the, the difference between online coaching and, and face-to-face coaching is really just skill acquisition. It's, it's very hard to teach someone a skill from a remote remote location. It's a bit like, you know, teaching someone how to play piano online. You can do it, but it's a different process. So it's the skill acquisition side of things that was missing. Uh, so it means that the way you program is slightly different, just slightly different. It isn't like this hugely different thing. And, and I think a lot of coaches perceive that all of a sudden now they have to think about online coaching exercises, which they're no different to what they were before. We just need to think about how do we apply those same movement patterns and use equipment that's probably readily available to the people that are doing them. So there's various things there and various processes. So we got under the hood of it all and, and we launched online coaching just organically. And we just said, right, you know, I had a couple of coaches who were going to do the, 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 the coaching for us. I didn't have time at the, the, the time today. A couple of guys I trusted. And I said, look, this is the process. We designed the whole process. We had we had a really cool uh, service model as such. And 
when somebody applied, they went through a series of processes, questionnaires and things like this. And ultimately, at the end of it, we gave them a, an enormous document with information about everything they, they could possibly need. So we do uh, geographical audits of where they lived and we'd, we'd give them all the, the, the menus and the, uh, the food options from the areas where they worked and where they actually lived. So we gave them options with respect to we would, we would organise for supermarkets to deliver their food. And, you know, the service model that we gave was incredible. We started it out just out of curiosity again at a fairly normal price. You know, our intent was if look if it went, if it kicked off and it was it was easy and you know it was how everybody online talks about it is this easy model. And you and I both know that one of the hardest parts of business is customer acquisition. Is that how do you acquire customers? So a lot of it is with with social is that you've got to have you know if you've got a, a thousand people on your social if you can interact and get you know ten percent of them hundred yeah. people. To sign up to your services, you are absolutely annihilated. It. Big time. You know, most people, if they can get up to about five percent of their following, they're doing incredibly well. But most people, they get an influx of maybe one to two percent of, of their audience. So if you've got a thousand people, you're going to pick up maybe ten, you know, ten people from that who are going to buy into your service. Obviously, depending on how well you sell your services. So again, we just threw it out there, which was an interesting experience because we had, you know, a quarter of a million people across social channels. We had uh, internal mailing lists, and this went out to the internal mailing list. I think at the time we're about twelve and a half thousand people. So we sent them out. The price we we did a, an offer uh, at the time. So our normal price would have been up there, you know, a few hundred pound a month, uh, and we actually did it at about half the price we we planned on doing it because we thought, right, well, let's let's put it out and see how how the interaction is, and. Guess how many people we had sign up? I've no idea. Eight. Wow. That's it. Gee, at half price. Yeah. So half half the price, quarter of a million people. We didn't we didn't push it. It wasn't like we were promoting it every five minutes. We put it out to all the channels once. So I threw it out to every single channel that we had once. And we just did it to see what the uptake would be. So quarter of a million people on social. Obviously the people that see it is a quarter of a million, but it's a lot. A lot of people saw it. We also had, and, and a lot of my audience is coaches, so they're not going to want face-to-face coaching for the most part. But you do find that a lot of coaches do take on face on online coaching with other coaches. So we would be, to me, we would be the obvious decision for a obvious route for a coach to go down because you're going to learn something as well, right? So we threw it out there, and we had eight people. So you know, twelve and a half thousand people on a mailing list. Obviously, a decent percentage of that will be coaches. Uh, quarter of a million people across social channels, uh, and and we had eight people sign. That was it. At half the price we were planning on doing it. And how did so you what, kind of take a step back and say, well, what's what's the next angle? Yeah, well, we looked at it, and you know, on a granular level, and we we looked at what are the approaches that other coaches and online businesses are doing, and and a lot of these online businesses and a lot of the online coaches of online coaches who are online coaches. Does that makes sense. Yeah. They're telling you that you can make, you know, thousands and millions. Oh, the 5X business thing. 5X businesses and blah, blah, blah. Firstly, the maths is really bad. You know, a lot of these guys, they're just very poor at business maths. You know, they're, they're, you know it's like coaches out there who are, who are telling you that what they earn per hour is actually what they take home. Yeah. When, in fact, it's nothing like, you know, you could be charging. You know, I, I put a post up about it the other day. A, a coach in London charging, you know, what I was my services were put out by the place I used to work for. I'll use that number, which was £65. I took home 31 of that. Off that, I've got my tax, I've got my national insurance, I've got my living costs, all these things. So ultimately, once you broke it all down, and the fact was is that I was delivering a service that was better than everybody else's. And, and you know, I, I, I don't normally come out with fairly 
arrogant or cocky statements like that, but but I know it was a fact, is that my service was better than anybody else's at the time. And because of that, that meant that the hour in the gym with the, the client was only part of it. So I was spending, you know, probably a good hour or so on each client that I had extra per week, which means I can now split that hourly rate that I'm getting into two. So ultimately it ended up like I was, you know, I was, I was a busy fool. I was working ridiculous hours and ultimately earning around about 15 or 16 pounds an hour, which living in central London isn't going to get you very far. No. You know, I had student debts from, you know, doing a degree that I still had to pay off that I actually qualified to pay that now at that point, you know, I was earning enough, you know, gross revenue for them to say, you have to pay that back now. So that was going out of it. My rent was going out of it. And, and I remember, and it brought me back to a point which I, you know, I mentioned in several podcasts, because it was, again, these significant moments, like the, the pulling the pubes out with the, with the bag, these significant moments are ones where you get quite humbled about things. And I remember I got my rent bill through and I was paying rent as I went because I couldn't guarantee that the money was going to be in my account. And I wasn't frivolous with money. You know, anybody who knows me and anybody's, you know, I, I, at that point in my life, I wasn't frivolous with money one bit. I didn't own a car. I didn't have any possessions that were huge value or, you know, I wasn't rolling around with expensive watches or anything like that. I wasn't trying to borrow. I wasn't buying new trainers every five minutes. None of that stuff. Uh, and I remember paying my rent out of a bottle that I had to empty of change. You know, I have, a, I have a little money box behind me in the, in the, in the office here that, that I put change into all the time. And it literally, I had to empty this bottle. I had to smash this bottle to take the money out, take it to the bank, pay it into the bank, so then I could pay the, the, the rent. And this was, this is probably, and again, I'm just throwing it out there, I think date-wise, this will probably be 10 years ago now. So it isn't that long ago. No, it's not at all. I'd have been, I'd have, I was 32, if, if I'm right with the time in there. I'd have been about 32, 33. You know, so at 32 and 33, you kind of, you know, you've got everybody online. I mean, how old are you, Shane? I'm 33 this year. 33. So at 33, you're thinking, I should kind of, you know, I should be able to have a house. And I should be able to, you know, you, you've got all those things in your mind. Like, I need to grow up here. And part of growing up is, you know, obviously the, the, the you know, having your own property or whatever it might be. And, and I know people do it later than ever now. You know, people get married later than ever. People get houses later than ever. You know, I, I, regularly have a uh, one of my good friends who does a bit of work for us i regularly have a conversation with him he still lives at home with his mum and i might live at home with your mum for as long as you can i said because because when it, you know if it's just an ego thing that you feel you've got to have your own place i said the amount of money that you will piss against the wall just fulfilling that basic egotistical requirement is unreal you know you're going to be paying an extra you know around london probably an extra 1500 quid a month easily in London on nothing on paying your ego yeah and I, think I, said, I said for what for that one person that you invite around to your, your apartment you know once in a while to go yeah this is mine you know I'm like it's ridiculous I said live at home with your mum as long, as long as you can it means that you know if you do get you know your other half you know they're not going to look down on you they're going to think you know they're pretty switched on and I, I always work on the assumption that if somebody looks down on me that the fact that I, I maybe live with my mum or something like that, or live with my parents, somebody's looking down at me. It's probably not the sort of person I want to spend my rest of my life with, anyways. You yeah, know? that makes you a know, lot of sense. Need, you know, they need to look at it as what it is. It's a, it's a process of saving money in order that when I do find somebody that I want to be with, that we can collectively come together and maybe go somewhere and buy a house. You know, 
rather than me pissing it against the wall right now in the hope that, you know, whatever I've bought or whatever I'm renting right now is going to serve us in the future. You know, it's a, it's a bizarre logic and it's, it's a weird logic that I think is pushed on so many people. It's this, you know, and it's part of the industry, right? Is the industry really pushes this whole, you've got to have this persona and you've got to have this, you know, you've got to be wearing the latest clothes or this, that, the other, or, you know, you've got to drive a certain car and blah, blah, blah. And I always remember it was, you know, for me, whenever whenever I bought a belonging that was worth a substantial amount, I never mentioned it to anybody, you know, because that wasn't what it was about. It was about, you know, I remember, uh, you know, my first, I always wanted the Rolex, like a big thing. You know, I was, there was two things I always wanted to own when I, when I was growing up. And I, I had a picture of one on my wall, which was one item that I bought that was, that was very expensive. I pictured one on my wall, which was kind of an aspirational thing I had as a kid. I was like, one day, one day. It's like they think, one day I'll own that. And one day I'll, you know, I'll be at that level. And then the other thing was was a Rolex. I always wanted a Rolex because my parents had gone to Turkey when I was young and bought me a Rolex. Obviously, it wasn't real, right? Yeah. You know, and I walked around with this on my wrist. And I remember how I felt with it on my wrist. And, and it was this aspirational tool that I had every single day of my life as I was looking at this thing and going... That reminds me that I need to graft my bollocks off and work hard if I'm ever going to own a real one of these. And at the time, you know, I grew up, I grew up up north. It was, you know, nobody had expensive watches. You know, if you had a G-Shock, you were like, you were balling. You know, and it yeah. was, it, it, but it was, and it was, it was just that's what I grew up with. That was the mantle that had been set. And I remember my, you know, I grew up in a pub, and, and uh, one of the, the guys that came to the pub on occasions owned a Ferrari. Uh, not a Ferrari, a Porsche. It was a Porsche 911. And my dad asked him, he goes, oh, would you mind if, if, if you know, you took my son out for a drive in it? You know, and he was a guy that, you know, lived in one of the, the local sort of halls and things like this. And, and he said, yeah, no problem. So I went out in this Porsche. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's amazing. You know, one day maybe. You know, and it, it, it was just all these things that, that, that worked on this, this ulterior level that motivated me to work harder. And there was always those weird weird things that you know i talk about now and i said to people look if something inspires you to work harder it's an investment you know so for me the watch that i bought years ago was an investment because every time i look down at my wrist it goes i gotta work my bollocks off i need to be reminded of that you know and that was for me it wasn't for anybody else it wasn't for the gram it wasn't for the facebook it wasn't for anything else it was for me to remind myself that i need to work hard if that's something that I want to own or that's something I want to have part of my life. And, you know, I have a timepiece that I can hand out to my kids when I'm older, which is, which was always a weird sort of thing that, that, that I had in my head. I was like, I want to leave a legacy. I want somebody to be able to, to reap, you know, reap what I've sown. And, and, you know, that, that continues to be a large part of what I do is that for me, it's important that my kids don't, and my kids are going to struggle. You know, do you have, do you have kids? Jim? No, I have no kids now. But our kids, you know, the day that you have kids, they're going to struggle because all of this that has occurred this year, they're going to be paying back. You yeah. know, and, and that's the reality. And, you know, I had a conversation with the kids the other day. I said, look, that, that's the reality. I said, you you two are going to have to get good jobs. I'm going to do everything out of my power to make sure that you're supported throughout that process. And, and you know, I will hopefully, you know, the, the day that I pass away, I'm going to leave things to you that will help your life and, help things going forward and and because you were up against it now taxes are going to go through the roof guaranteed you know and you're going to be paying back the debts that we as a country have developed in the last 12 months you know because of this disaster 
uh, you know, however you want to look at it. So yeah, it's a, you know, it's an interesting sort of process, and and, and I think there's always that. And again, I, I said about tangents before. We've got completely off. Yeah, we've got literally like none of those questions were on it. But now it's interesting yeah. because. I've heard from when you talk about kind of like living at home and not being ashamed of it and not dictate not dictating to what society says, and then you'd have the other side of the argument from say other people in a similar position to yourself saying you must move out of home to put pressure on yourself in order to get the revenue in order to go all that kind of stuff. So there's always two sides to every every yeah, story. Pressure, pressure's good, but stupid pressure is ridiculous. You know, if you know if. if if you want to put pressure on yourself and live at home, make investments. Yeah. Make investments. That's pressure. It's gambling almost. You know, make investments. You know, I'll be like, you know, the, 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 my friend who I, I advise, he's like, you know, he makes investments all the time. You know, he's like putting money into businesses and blah, blah, blah. But he lives at home with his mum. But he's probably got more liquid assets than anybody, else, you know, anybody out there who's typically living at home with a mum. You know, because they're living hand to mouth. They're earning money and spending it. Well, like, well, I think that's going to, I hopefully, I, I can see that already from my own friends is that their spending has come down a lot. A lot of them would have been doing the, the whole get the money in, spend it, and now they're saving an awful lot. And they're like, well, I know I can go on a, either a decent holiday or else I can go and potentially upgrade what I have already. Or else I can invest and get a new house if I want to get a house, if they've been living out of home already. Or else they can go and potentially quit their job and go and do that nixer that they've always thought that they wanted to do. And I think a lot of people are going to make, have to make the shift from, or a lot of people want to make the shift, but they're scared of doing it. And potentially now there's obviously, there's two ends to it, as there always is. There's the people who's lost their job, but there's also the people who haven't been going out in the piss every weekend and are saving a fortune. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that alone, you know, the, the reality that will, and people go, they'll be at the end of this and they'll be looking at their bank balance and going, wow, this actually wasn't as bad as I thought it was. And, it, and it's not because of the reasons they think, it's because they haven't been spending. Yeah. You know, the, the, the irony, they, they actually showed on national news, our, our, you know, our nearest town, A. Bromley. So they actually showed the queue to Primark on news. And I'm like, these are people stood in the queue all with clothes on their back. You know, almost guaranteed that they've got clothes at home that they can wear, that, that aren't out of season, that aren't blah, blah, blah. But they're going in there to buy what is termed as fast fashion, right? So they're, they're buying stuff that is apparently to make themselves feel better about themselves and and look on trend or look a certain way for complete strangers, which I, I kind of get, but else kind of don't. I'm like, look, it's, it, you know, you're going to spend money in a shop that is really designed for people who haven't got money to be able to have, you know, to, to, to look look good. I mean, there's no, there's no excuse nowadays to, you know, for parents not to dress their kids well. Clothes are incredibly cheap. You can get really cool clothes from places like Primark, New Look, wherever it is, and and you know they're very very cheap compared to what they used to be. You know, there's no excuse for you not not enabling and facilitating your kids to, to look decent. You know, there isn't that anymore. Whereas you know years ago it was kind of you know you either had clothes that were kind of super old or battered or whatever it might be because clothes were probably more expensive ten years ago than they are now. Yeah, and it, it, it was just the irony of looking at these people where they, they they're waiting to queue to get into a shop that really is only utilised by people who don't have a lot of money, and they're desperate to get in there to spend money that they probably haven't been earning for the last six months. I just don't get that. It just doesn't make sense. But again, this is this is maybe the, the business head that 
you know, I have probably more so than ever before. And also that investment head where you're looking at, you know, feeding other people and, you know, you've got a responsibility. Whereas when you're younger and especially in the PT industry, you don't have any responsibilities. It's an awesome job to have when you're young because you get paid, you go and spend what you get paid and you get paid again the week after. And it's awesome because there's no overheads. You know, PTs don't have overheads. You know, they have to pay the gym a bit for using the gym. And then beyond that, they need a, a, a new pair of trainers every couple of months. Yeah. And no. that's your overheads. Whereas any business that's scalable has massive overheads. I mean, you know, I pay now more in overheads and, and in tax than I, you know, than I was earning 10 years ago. You know, it's it, it's mad. It's mad. that money is just gone. It's like, you know, you get your tax bill, you're like, that money is just gone. You know, that's four or five luxury holidays gone. Yeah, just like that. I I was issue with my accountant yesterday, and it was it was it was painful to see just what goes in, what goes out so quickly. It's it's mad, just a click of a finger. We're going to talk about kind of the nutrition side for kind of it can be for PTs and for general population as well who listen to this. And I think one thing that a lot of people do is they overcomplicate what nutrition is. And they're asking like, is there a perfect macro macro thing or macro split? Is there perfect calories that they have to be on? Can you kind of expand on how every person is so different when it kind of comes to nutrition for themselves? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it's always been an industry thing to massively overcomplicate these. I don't, I don't know where it came from. I, you know, I've looked at this in, in in a very detailed level for years and tried to tried to kind of pinpoint what happened when the main coaches start to do this, and 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 then you have the oversimplification, which was the bodybuilding style diets that people used to do, which were, you know, all they do is they take anything of interest out of someone's diet, put all the boring stuff in and make it this massive ordeal. Like you had to, you know, you weren't allowed anything tasty. You, had, you couldn't have anything with decent texture. You couldn't have anything that was sociable. So it was this this real kind of nth degree of dieting. And that got carried over because obviously logically everybody looked at it and went, who are the who are the people in the world that get in the best shape out of anybody, the quickest? Bodybuilders. So what we'll do is we'll take what they do and we'll move that across to the general population. And somewhere on the line, people forgot about the fact that the general population don't really give two hoots about being in that level of conditioning. Obviously it's a desire. It'd be nice. It'd be nice to be in that shape all the time, but reality is ninety nine percent of people aren't. You know, go go and take a walk around your local beach with your top off. If you think you're in bad shape or, or you know, you, you have some kind of complex about the way you look, go and do that. Nobody's looking at you. They're not looking at – nobody's looking at anybody else and nobody really gives a hoot. You know, we have this delusion that people care. It's like, what are, what are you wearing on your feet? People are like, yeah, but I can't wear the same pair of shoes a few times, you know, out because people notice that. And the question goes back and they say, well, how many people did you notice what they were wearing on their feet last time you went out with them? Nobody can answer it. You know, so it's a, it's it's the same kind of mentality that people took with diets. So so all of a sudden we've got all these people doing these really wacky out there crazy bodybuilding style diets, and then and then we went the other tangent is that when then what happened we started to get all these really fatty crazy ways of eradicating foods and taking them out of the equation and blah blah blah. So and then from that I think then almost became this oversimplification, which is now currently very much on trend, which is the calories in, calories out, which you can't argue with because it's right, you know, but you can argue with the context in which it's put in. So if I said to you, it's just a matter of calories in, calories out, it's a bit like telling somebody who's flat broke, stood outside, you know, in the door queue and saying, 
just a matter of working harder. Because yeah. it is. You know, you're quite right. It's about a matter of working harder and working smarter, but it's this context-free statement that everybody parades around. It's just calories and calories out. Yeah, it is, but it's not that simple. It is, but it isn't. So try and explain that to somebody. That we've got to, on a level of numbers, whether we're dealing with performance athletes, bodybuilders, whoever, we need to look at what's going out versus what's coming in. That's the reality to start with. You know, then we start to get into the, the, the details. So there's a reason why they call macronutrients and the micronutrients, because they're in that order. So we need to look at the bigger stuff first. So the bigger stuff is the stuff like people's habits. So I never look at what people are eating. So this is something that years ago I did. First thing I did was, what are you eating? You don't want to eat that. That's a bad food. And that was the mentality. You know, 20 years ago, that's how I looked at things. I was like, look, you can't eat that. You've got to eat more of this and more of this, and you can't have that and can't have that. Whereas now, one of the first things we did, and we did this with the online coaching model, is we look at people to tell us the context in which they eat. So why are they eating? So why are they eating? What are they eating? When are they eating? And why are they eating? Did I repeat something there? You've read why twice. So, so, so we're looking at the, the, the rationale behind the food choices. So you know that if the sun's shining outside, well, you might not know, I know, but if the sun's <laughs> shining outside, I fancy cold beer. Yeah. I don't fancy drinking red wine, I fancy drinking rosy or white wine. But I'm a red wine drinker. So the context has changed. And the context has changed, therefore my outlook and the way that I look at things. I'm thinking about a barbecue. I don't fancy putting the oven on indoors because it's going to make it swelling hot, but I can put the barbecue on outside and stand in the fresh air and cook food. So it's a context. So once I start to understand the context, I can start to look at the situation in which somebody's eating. So once you start to address that as well, you start to appear and you start to grasp people's habits and behaviours. Because again, nobody got overweight for something they just did once in a while. Everybody get, becomes overweight or they become out of shape or whatever it might be, or your health ultimately deteriorates because of the things you regularly do, not the things you would do now and again. You know, if you were to smoke once a week, it's probably not going to have that much of a, a detrimental impact on your health as if you did it every single day. So I'm bothered about the things you're doing repeatedly. So that would facilitate me then looking at, you know, what somebody's eating. Now, the challenge we have with that as coaches is that not people, people don't lie. Some people do. People don't lie, but people miss, uh, misinterpret what they're consuming. They uh, they poorly report what they've been consuming because they try and do it in hindsight. People get to the end of the day and they get their little notepad out and they go, yeah. right, what did I eat today? Nobody can remember because the the, the, the the characteristic of something being habitual is that you don't really consciously acknowledge it. You know, there'll be things that you do on a daily basis that if somebody asks you, what did you do this morning? You'd be like, oh, not a lot. But in fact, there was a whole load of things that you did and they're all habitual. You just didn't really acknowledge them because you got so used to them being there, you just do them. So I'm looking at all those processes. So so coach out there is looking at those processes. So once we start to acknowledge them, so does the person we're dealing with. So when they start to acknowledge the things that they have problems with, and the vast majority of people, you know, they, you'll know this, Shane. If, if I said to, you know, walk outside, there's a guy walking up the street now with his dog, right? I go and tap him on the shoulder and say, do you know what you should and shouldn't be eating? Yeah. He's going to list everything he should be eating and everything he shouldn't. And you know something? He's pretty much going to be bang on the button. Yeah. So so our problem isn't that people don't get what they should and shouldn't be eating. People just don't know how to apply it. There's reasons why he won't eat the list of things that he thinks he should be eating. And there's a reason why he lists the things and eats the things that he knows he shouldn't be eating. So I know I shouldn't be eating pizza, but I have one every Friday night. So I'm now looking at what's the context in which you eat it. 
why do you eat it? What's the purpose behind the food consumption? You know, is it a sociable thing? Is it a sociable thing? If it is, do you not want to draw social attention to the fact that you're trying to lose weight? In which case, my approach is different than if they're not bothered about social attention. Now, every, pretty much everybody's bothered about social attention. You know, this is part of the problem we have is that, you know, a lot of the things we've already talked about is about social attention. You know, people are concerned about it, what other people think. So, you know, if, if, if you came with me to a pizza place, and people do what's called mirror. So they look at what everybody else around them is doing and they mirror it because they want to fit in, yeah. be suited. You know, it's like like drinking. And I learned this years ago when I, you know, I actually did a couple of bodybuilding shows years ago because I, I came out playing sport at a fairly high level and, and I was stuck for things to do. So I thought, hey, I'm going to do a bit of bodybuilding. Sounds interesting. Like the discipline. You know, hated the, loved the process, hated the standing on stage and you're done. Hated that. Yeah. But I loved the process and I loved the process of knowing that I could do it. And it was one of my mates, you know, one of his big birthdays and we went out and I was like, how do I negotiate this situation without feeling like I don't fit in? So what I did is I, is I got a bottle of beer and I emptied it out. I, I bought it and emptied it. And then I just filled it with water for the rest of the night. And instantly it made everybody around me feel more comfortable. Not me. It wasn't about me. It was about my peers. Because I was cool with it. They weren't. So had I been drinking a bottle of water, they'd been bugging me all the time. Because they're trying to make themselves feel comfortable, right? So they're looking at me going, he's drinking water. And I've got the discipline to do that. And I wouldn't want to do that. And he's going to watch me progressively get drunk. And I'm not comfortable with that either. So what they'd do is they'd egg me on to try and, try and make alcohol with them. And I remember at the end of the night, they were, they were all like, right, we're getting taxes, blah, blah, blah. I said, no. I said, I'm driving. And one of them turned around to me and he thought I was drunk. Oh, wow. He thought I was drunk. I drank two cups of coffee and about nine gallon of water. So, so I was like, no, I haven't had a drop all night. I haven't had anything. He was like, yeah, but you were dancing and you were, you know, you socialized with us. And I said, yeah. I said, but I wasn't drinking. I said, I haven't had a drink all night. He goes, really? But I made them feel comfortable. So in doing so, you know, and I also got over the whole thing of stepping onto a dance floor without being inebriated, which for a northerner is a big challenge. <laughs> you know, it could be the same for you, right? I, 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 I don't drink. So I, I'm when, when you're talking about kind of being in those social situations, I know at the very, very beginning when I stopped drinking, it was it was awkward for everyone else because they, they'd associated it with me kind of like being... But you stopped drinking, right? Yeah, I stopped drinking like three and a half right. years ago. Yeah, so so because you stopped, your social circles at the time would have revolved around you drinking. So right? exactly, and those social circles have completely changed now. And I, it was like they were friends, they were drinking friends rather than friends, if Correct. you know what I mean. So Correct. now it was like, if I go on a night out, my mates are, hap are happy out. But if I go to say a wedding where I may not necessarily know everyone, what I tend to try to do is have like a Diet Coke in either like a G&T glass so it makes it look like look I'm drinking. Like, yeah, it makes everybody else feel comfortable, right? Yeah, You've got exactly. a drink in your hand. Yeah, exactly. You know, then, there's nothing more awkward than somebody standing without a drink in their hand. And then the Heineken Zeros are a game changer there. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and this is about other people. It's about, and, and this brings us back to the, the notion of how important context is when we talk about food. So the context in which you eat is so important and when we look at things like that, your social circles changed, right? And this is one of the realities and one of the most difficult parts of anybody who's on a, on a weight loss journey or anything like that is that the reality is their social circles will change. There's a reason they hang around with their friends because everybody overindulges 
and everybody enjoys watching everybody else overindulge. Now, you get somebody in that group who isn't overindulging, they, they are made to feel very, very awkward. And they're made to feel very, very com- uncomfortable. And they'll get the, 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 the regular terms that people throw at them will be things like, oh, no, it's only just a little bit. Oh, it won't just harm you this, just this once. It won't just... But then people don't see it as part of a grander picture. And they don't see it as part of a bigger picture. And, you know, it, it takes me back to a week or so ago, I did a, a consult with a guy about business. And he sent me all these numbers. And every single number was rounded off. So when he said, you know, I, I was like, I wanted his outgoings and his income. And, 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 and he put everything as it was like, it was £500 and it was £20 and it was £10 and it was £700. And I was like, like they're not they're not the proper proper numbers. He goes, yeah, they are. Because no, they're not. I said, you've guessed them all. Because they're not the real numbers. I said, if I round them up and round them down to wherever they're actually meant to be, you're broke. I said, and, and, and if I base everything off these estimates, so I asked him about, he said, this is how much I earn per week off PT. I said, is that a good week? Is that a bad week? Is that, you know, is that the average amount of people that come in? Uh, how often do they go on holiday year, these, these PT clients, blah, blah, blah. Because I can't base yearly income off what your best week was because I'll, I'll make you bankrupt because I'll go, look, you need to reinvest this and reinvest this because the, the reality is for most businesses that are scalable and most businesses that you want to, and most people like to self-fund their businesses. If you're going to self-fund your business, you've got to have a grasp of numbers like no, you know, you've got to be insanely good with them. But you've also get, got to get comfortable with, with living on the seat of your pants financially. Yeah. Because you've got to be able to put as much back into your business as you potentially can, which is why it's really important that your investments back into your business remain very, very sound investments. So this is like, you know, courses and things like this that, that people have spent huge amounts of money on in the past and I'm, I'm guilty of it i went to florida i spent thousands and thousands of pounds going to florida to do a course it was all about dealing with athletes and came back and it was useless to me i enjoyed it don't get me wrong it was a great experience you know learning how they coach nfl and this was the company called athletes performance which is now called exos yeah yeah but it's it's a company that's designed that's that trains and coaches coaches to deal with professional athletes not the general public as was a lot of the stuff back in the day that uh, Poliquin used to do. You know, the PICP, yeah. it's for athletes. It's for professional athletes. That's what it's designed for. But all these people go and get qualified and they're coming back and doing Peterson step tests with Doris, who's 60 years old, who's, you know, going, yeah, but she needs to work on this. And then people going away doing all these stuff about, you know, uh, postural alignment, blah, blah, blah. And they were forgetting about their main clientele. So, you know, in a nutshell, our main clientele, when you're looking at nutrition, want to socialize. They want to eat out with their friends. They want to eat at restaurants. They want to be able to have some taste, variety, and uh, you know complexity to the things they eat. Most of them can't cook, so they might need help with that. You know, Most of the, the, the generations nowadays, they're not taught how to cook, not as part of any curriculum, and mostly parents are too busy to teach them how to cook. Whereas back in the day, you know, you know, People used to do cooking with their parents as part of you growing up. Yeah. You know, they, they didn't have iPads and they didn't have all these other things. So <laughs> part of the process was, right, what are we going to do with the kids now? Oh, we'll cook a cake with them or we'll make make something with them and we'll teach them how to cook in the kitchen. Whereas now the kids go, no, I don't want to cook anything with you. I want to go and play on my iPad. So what we've got here is we've got a generational difference as well. So so as a coach, part of the services I've got to offer is food acquisition, i.e. where they're going to get it from. I've got to help them with that. 
you know, I'm going to be able to help them order it. I'm going to help them with the numbers as to what they're going to order. You know, I've done, uh, I've done online shopping for most of my clients throughout the years. You know, Acado, you know, I've, you know, Tesco's.com, whoever it might be. I'll organize their weekly shop. I'll structure it around their families or whoever dependents they've got. If they're eating out, I'll find out what's going on at the restaurants. If they're traveling, I'll find a gym for them. I'll find a coach for them. I'll find, you know, and I'll write a program they can do from that gym. The amount of times I've phoned up a, a hotel gym, well, a hotel in the middle of nowhere, you know, it could be, or whatever, you know, in LA or whatever, I'll ring this hotel up and go, can you just tell me, give me a list of the equipment that's in your gym? And they're like, what? I said, can you give me a list of the equipment? Like, Sorry, sir, we don't, we don't know what's in the gym. I said, can somebody just pop and take a picture of the gym then for me? 99% of the time, you know, nobody has a clue what's in their gym. And and I get that. I get that they don't. But that also made me think at the time was that there's no other coaches doing this. So hence why, you know, when I retired from personal training, I was charging more than anybody else in London. You know, I think there's one person charging more than I was. And that was to do with the service level of what we were delivering. So this goes back to the online coaching thing. What are you going to offer people? What do they need help with? You need to know as a coach if they've got kids because you know they're feeding the kids as well. So when you design or help them process that whole food, so let's say they eat spaghetti bolognese every Thursday night, your job is to get them a recipe that they can continue to cook spaghetti bolognese with but with less calories in it. Yeah. That's your job. Your job isn't to tell them not to eat spaghetti bolognese. Make the spaghetti bolognese for your kids and your husband, but don't don't eat it yourself. You're going to have chicken and broccoli. But that's just inconvenience, and they they ultimately won't stick to that. Bad coaching, yeah. bad coaching. It's not being it's not being empathetic. It's not being considerate. You know, one of the main skills a coach needs to acquire are ones that people don't think they need to acquire. You need to have good soft skills. You need to have good communication skills. If you're poor at communication, you're not going to get very far. You also need to have a level of empathy. You need to be considerate, massively considerate of the person you're dealing with's environment. You know, you can't turn around and go, well, you know, and I always hear this term, you'll have heard me rib people about it on social before. And you always hear this, this this thing coming from coaches' mouths where they say, they just didn't want it enough. I said, no, you're a bad coach. That's They didn't get results because you're a bad coach. It's got nothing to do with them not wanting enough. Of course they wanted it. They've been paying you, you know, 180 quid a week for personal training. So of course they want it. Nobody invests 180 pounds a week into something that they don't want. It's just you coach them really badly which meant that you made everything they did super uncomfortable, super awkward, and super difficult. You know, you might be one of them coaches that gets people in and just absolutely massacres them in the gym. So they come in on a Monday, you beat them up to the point that they can't walk, so then the knee goes down for the next three days, and ultimately they end up burning the same amount of calories they were burning before the exercise. But the coach doesn't look at it like that. They're like, yeah, but we're training so intensely three times a week. No, what you're doing is you put them in a wheelchair every day. Which means they they do not want to move during the day, and neat accounts for probably on most in most people's scenarios about thirty percent of their active movement. Training less than ten percent, so you'd be better off actually telling them not not but don't bother coming in and do personal training with me because it's pointless because I'm just going to hammer you and make you not walk for the days. Your best bet is I'll set you a daily walking target that you're going to hit every day consistently. There you go. Now all of a sudden I've just done myself out of my personal training job because really I'm just a crap coach. Yeah, they, I, I've I've seen that firsthand where the the PTs will absolutely destroy their client. The client can like you can see them when they're walking down the stairs, they'd have to get the lift down the stairs, and you're like, yeah. they, they won't be able to do anything. They'll be too sore. They won't be doing, able to play with the kids, and that could be their family time in the evening as well. You also have to take that into of course. account. Of course. Um, and, and there's times when you know I've taken that approach where 
I'm going to hammer someone into the ground. And the vast majority of the time, if I'm hammering someone into the ground, I've got recovery methods in play. So if I've got a professional athlete, I expect them to, after they leave and they go and train, they're going to put on, they might put, you know, the uh, hyper ice or they might put, you know, hyper ice is basically big long leggings that ice your legs. So they're going to be in that for the next few hours. They're going to get massage in the evening. They're going to do stretching and they're probably going to do some cardio later on in the day. They're a full-time athlete. I expect them to be able to do that. So I am going to put them into the ground. I'm going to hammer the hell out of them because they've got a very limited time frame. You know, I dealt with an Olympian years ago and their training plan was planned over four years. And I don't want them missing any marks in that four-year plan because that ultimately takes them to the point that they are competing for a medal four years down the line. So that's how much planning you would do, you know, for something like that. If I've got uh, somebody for a movie, budget's at my disposal. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to hammer you every single session that you see me, but I expect you then to spend the other 23 hours outside of the gym making sure you're recovered and ready to go to the next one because that's your job. That's your job right now. Your job isn't to go on set and act or do anything like that. Your job right now is to get in the shape that that producer wants you in. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's I think that's a massive point about the, the recovery as well because I, I think a lot of people have been jumping around the living room for lockdown and they're they're afraid to take the rest day. This whole fear of missing out on a workout and it was the biggest thing for the first two weeks of my clients was to kind of get them to kind of take a step back and say right do you want to have three or four quality sessions or do you want to have seven shite sessions and it's about getting your sleep under control most of them are having to adjust with kids screaming in their ears running into walls having a massive massive stressful job they're sitting at their desks all day and they just need to find the balance and then if they can't find the balance with their training they're not going to find their balance with the nutrition if they can't find the balance with that they're not going to find the balance with their sleep so it's it's everything has to like you have to think of your life as kind of like a piece of pie the four quadrants have to be family fitness mindset and finance and you have to think have them as even as possible as as you want as you can uh otherwise i know myself when i have my fitness not great or my the finance stuff or the business side of stuff kind of creeps over and goes into 30 40 percent i know myself my mental health feels it yeah, and this is, and this is understanding you know the, the the individual right is that is that do you have you know uh, I would look at things like you know who do you live with how do you, how well do you get on with the people you live with yeah you know that's a question I need to ask you know who are the, where are the stresses coming from in your life is it work are you stressed about work can I appease that stress in somewhere shape or form you know I've dealt with athletes whose biggest problem for progression was their other half because their other half didn't support them. Yeah. And their other half didn't get it. Part of the problem I had with clients was often their support networks. So they'd leave the gym in the morning and then they go to work. Now, the problem is, is the peers were putting a lot of pressure on them to conform and do what they do, which was to, you know, on a Friday afternoon, someone would roll in the office with a box full of donuts. So their assumption would be they'd have to eat it. Otherwise, it made everybody else feel uncomfortable. So rather than saying, right, take the donut and then, then hide it or take the donut and don't eat it or sneak off to the bathroom and throw it in the bin or whatever... You know, I'd be like, right, how do we pencil that into your day? Or alternatively, how do we educate your office? So quite often I would suggest to my clients go, right, I'm going to approach your HR department in your office. I'm going to go, look, this is what I do. This is what I do for a living. I'm going to go in and I'm going to do a lunchtime meet of all the people that want to lose weight and, you know, get in shape or whatever it might be. And I'm going to do a free hour seminar about how they're going to do it. So I'd go in off the back of that. My client gets less peer pressure. I've got a whole bunch of list of people who want to train with me who can't because I'm too busy. 
you know, that I would then refer on to the, 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 the business that I was working from. So I'd give them to other coaches or whatever it might be. And, and off the back of that, my client actually has a really easy time when they're going to work now. Everybody's like, oh, what are you doing today? Can I copy what you're doing? Because I know you're getting progress. You know, and I trust what you're doing is working because I've just been educated on it and it makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a massive thing. I, I, as we've spoken about, it is social peer pressure. It is a lot of kind of, we can also blame our surroundings and blame. I, I've, I've had someone on the phone recently and they were whispering. They, they were talking, their, their partner was in the house with them. They were whispering and because they were afraid of that, like she, she wanted to lose weight, but she didn't feel she had the support from her partner. And she was whispering because she was ashamed of being in this yeah. position that she was. Um, and he wasn't supportive. He was, he was come. He was. He's a little bit heavier. Um, and she's felt that she put on the weight since. Yeah, and he wants to continue with his life as it is. Yeah, and she wants to change hers. And, and this is the problem. And this, this is what happens in you know. And I always say this with with anything that, uh, anything with sort of weight loss or anything like that is. What you've got to realise is that as it progresses. People, people lose their friends. They lose their social circle because it no longer, it no longer does what it, what you want it to do, you know. And your life is no longer in alignment with their lives, you know. You're doing something completely different to what everybody else does. So at the end of that process, chances are your social circle will be completely different. You know, the people you hang around with will be different. The people that you you do things will will, will be different. And unfortunately, for a lot of people, when they approach it for weight loss, those circles are established. They, they don't go out with their friends. They go out with their, their friends of them and their spouses. So now all of a sudden the, the, the environment is so much more difficult to manage. You know, they've got kids, they've got more responsibilities, so it becomes more difficult. But in some respects, it actually becomes a little bit easier because there's certain things that they didn't have control over now, which they have complete control over. You know, they understand that every night the same person is cooking food or they have a routine. You know, they know that, uh, and, and, and it's just negotiating those things. And you look around, there's people, there's people in shape who get in shape, in the best shape of their life when they're, when they're 60, people do it when they're 50, people do it when they're 40, people do it when they're 30, people do it whenever. And there's always examples and you can always look at somebody and go, oh my God, they did it. Why can't I do it? Because they managed their situation better than you did. That's all. So as a coach, really, my biggest job is managing people's situation. As coaching, when I'm coaching nutrition, when I'm coaching training, same thing. Training, training was always about, you know, that, that was my main role, main job, you know. So when I got an athlete, what am I looking for in an athlete? I'm not looking at what they're good at, I'm looking at what they're bad at. So I'm looking mechanically at an athlete and I'm going, right, I need you to mechanically be more efficient than you are before. That's all I've got to do. That's all it is. Nothing more than that. That's all I've got to do. If I do that, I, I accomplish what you want out of this. You become a better athlete. So really, it's a, it's, it's a simple equation. Now, when I deal with the general public, <coughs> way more complicated. Way more complicated. Pro athletes, I'll deal with all day, every day. Because it's, sh- it's the stuff that I really thoroughly understand. You give me anatomy, you give me movement planes, you give me force patterns, you give me all that stuff, easy. Because to me, it's just a bunch of mathematics, it's a bunch of, you know, it's... It, it, it's a bunch of graphs, it's a bunch of charts, it's all that stuff that I learned about when I was at university and all the stuff I learned about in Florida, paying money for a course that I didn't really use. Whereas general public, it's a whole different ballpark. I don't care about force curves. I don't care if they're, they're necessarily getting stronger all the time. I don't care what their PBs are. You know, there's very little, 
and I should only really care about what they care about. And this comes back to this whole thing about, you know, body fat and how we talk about it, how we, if somebody's concerned about the way they look, I am too. If they're not, I don't care. This is this thing about obesity and, and overweight and, you know, using the term fat, right? Is that if somebody comes to me and they, they've consciously become overweight, i.e. they made choices that have brought them to that physical point in their life and every choice they made they're entirely happy with. I can't complain at that. If somebody's flat broke and somebody loves the fact they're flat broke, I'm cool with that. It's like every decision in life. If it's an educated and a conscious decision and you've made it because for the betterment of you at the end of it, if somebody decides to drink, cool. If somebody decides not to drink, cool. If somebody decides to take drugs, cool. If somebody decides not to take drugs, cool. As long as it's an educated decision, which the vast majority of the time in a lot of those circumstances they aren't, I don't remember ever thinking, yeah, I think having a drink would be a good idea. I don't ever remember that. Yeah. I drank because of peer pressure. But I enjoyed it. So even though I was, it was that horse to water, I was taking the water, tasted the water, I liked it, I had it under control, you know, for the most part. You know, when I played rugby, I probably didn't sometimes, but for the most part. So now, as an adult, when I choose to drink, I choose to drink. When I choose not to drink, I don't drink. I don't have an obligation that every night after I finish work, I, I open a can of beer or, or have a wine or anything like that, which is a lot of people, that's their life. That's their habits. And they, they don't do it. So when you ask them and say, why do you do that? They're like, mm, I don't know. I just do. So, you know, financially, they're struggling. So I'm, I'm going to say to them, look, you, you're going to have half a bottle of wine less every night. Financially, that's going to help you. So there's less stress from a financial perspective. Your body's going to be less stressed because you're not consuming alcohol every single night. And you've got to look forward to it so much more on that one day that you do have it, and then you can have the whole bottle. So rather than having a quarter of a bottle every night, you're now having a full bottle on one day, thoroughly enjoying the process of being slightly tipsy and slightly drunk or whatever it is that you're chasing. And you've consumed less calories. You're not doing something habitually, which ultimately you can express prospectively turn into alcoholism that's one of the, the basic premises of it it's a habitual thing you do it's not something you do once a week nobody becomes an alcoholic by drinking wine once a week yeah you know you don't become addicted to something by doing it once in a while you know but it's but it's how does that how are you drawn back to it you know i remember at university there was always there was always a temptation every day to go out drinking because somebody was yeah one of my social circle was out every single night <clears throat> guaranteed if I wanted to go out on Monday I'd find someone who was going out if I wanted to go out on Tuesday I'd find someone who was going out if I wanted to go out on Wednesday same thing and if I was looking for that that was great but I wasn't at that time so it all comes back to you know behaviours, habits understanding someone's circumstance and once you understand someone's circumstance and they always say about walking a mile in somebody else's shoes that's kind of what you've got to do but you can't just walk a mile in the shoes. You've actually got to live their day. You've got to understand what their day looks like. You yeah, know? I think I think the one thing that has definitely stood to me is from someone who's come from a corporate background. I I call it like so called a real job. Um, I had a real job for like five six years. Didn't enjoy it. Didn't enjoy the corporate world at all. So in my head, I can put the whole ideology of I was one of those people that was bringing in salads on Monday to Thursday, Friday Saturday Sunday potentially a little bit of Monday literally be on the pace 
eating kebabs, eating pizzas, I feel like shit, and then so tired until Wednesday, and then repeat. It's culture, right? Yeah. That's yeah. the culture. Yeah. You bought into that culture. You look at teachers, right? Nearly every teacher you know over-consumes coffee. Why? Yeah. Because that's what everybody does in the break. When you go break between lessons, everybody goes to the staff room, everybody drinks coffee. That's culturally what people do. And unless you absolutely despise coffee, chances are you will become a coffee drinker. Yeah, the, you know? the, the social circle is around the coffee machine. It's massive. You know, it's a massive cultural thing. You know, and there's things that we associate with culture is that a lot of, you know, we talk a lot about morning routines and things like this. And, you know, I've got a new project that starts in January that is all about human performance. You know, that's all we're going to talk about is human performance. So we're looking at all these on a really granular level. And, and we're talking about things like habits and behaviors and the things that will optimize somebody's performance. So when we look at something like somebody's morning routine, so part of my morning routine is this here, that, you know, I'm holding up a drink for, and, and that's a green drink. I have a green drink every morning because one of my one of my shortfalls from a nutritional perspective is always I don't always manage to get enough fruit and veg in, right? And people are like, well, why don't you just buy more and consume more? It's not about that. It's about the fact that a lot of my food now is convenience. Yeah, I love to cook. I'm a massive fan of cooking. Love it. Love the process. Love that. You know, find it very relaxing. Love to cook. I think I'm a half decent chef. I, mean, <laughs> I owned a restaurant for about four years. Uh, you know, grew up in a pub, so food is a big part of my life, and and I'd love to have the opportunity to go. But I'm work. If I lose that work, I'm affecting my quality of life, my kids' quality of life, my family's quality of life, and possibly their generation after them. So it's really a better decision for me to spend an hour working, you know, and, and creating revenue or growing a business or whatever it might be, and that excites me. You know, and I never thought it would excite me to sit on an Excel spreadsheet, but it does. I love that because I know that ultimately at the end of it, I've got an outcome that, you know, uh, looking at uh, consumer behaviours. So consumer behaviours, part of what I've been doing this week is, is breaking down the consumer behaviour of an ACA member, an academy member. So I'm looking at people like yourself and I'm questioning, what does your day look like from the day you wake, from the moment you wake up? What does it look like now? What did it look like pre-COVID? So I'm considering everything right down to you know, what kind of coffee machine are you using in the morning? Are you drinking coffee? Are you having sugar with your coffee? Are you having sweetener with your coffee? What are you doing? You know, are you having an energy drink in the morning? Are you using caffeine? Are you, you know, having a greens drink in the morning? I'm considering all those things because they're all the things that I need to understand as a business as to what do you do to enhance your performance on a daily basis? You know, what is, you know, what is the purpose behind the, the types of clothes you wear? What's the purpose behind, you know, do you write notes or do you put them on a device? Are you using Apple? Are you using Samsung? That's all relevant, you know, because it's all data, right? And if you come from a corporate world, you'll understand the power of data. Data is incredible. Yeah. I want to know every behavior and every habit that my, my people have, you know, I might find out that 90% of the people that are on the academy use an espresso machine. In which case, would I be, would I probably find a large part of my audience in the Nespresso world? I might do, right? If they're a personal trainer, chances are I might follow them on social media. So maybe I should be popping up in Nespresso's feed and making comments now and again. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. You know, and it's, and again, we're talking on a real in depth sort of level there. But, but also, yeah, and, and again, I'm sorry, we've, 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 uh, tangent. <laughs> yeah. Fine. It's, it, uh, yeah, I like to talk. <laughs> I know. Which helps. I, I, which helps I, as a coach. No, I, I prefer someone to be going off on tangents than someone that isn't going to talk. But I knew 
by getting yourself on there'll be so much to learn from kind of the behavior side the motivation side the nutrition side and so many different things like we could have had like 20 episodes in depth on what we've spoken about today um but it, it's 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 been amazing to, to to have a chat with yourself and i've definitely learned about how to kind of potentially take a step back and understand the client's perception a little bit more and ask them don't be afraid to ask them so many coaches are like i don't want to ask that ask them survey them you know do whatever you need to do send them a form and say do you mind filling this out for me you know they'll tell you so much information yeah or explain to them why you need the information what you're using it for because a lot of people don't understand that they'll fill out a consultation form they go what what's that question about i mean the reason i need to know that is because this so then they'll put value into it Right? If somebody doesn't understand something, they don't understand the value behind it. If I said to you, what I need to go to Shane, I need you to go away and tell me what your income and your outgoings are, put it on a spreadsheet, you might, like, I don't see the value in that, so I'm not going to do it. And if I do do it, I'm going to do it really poorly. And that's the, the first interaction I get with a lot of business owners. And I'm like, I need that information. And they were like, oh, okay. And then they go away and try and loosely put it together, but they don't. They don't put it together true to what it is. You know, So I end up going, look, I need your login. Give me a login and let me go and get it myself because yeah. I need to understand. But they're also shy of telling me the fact that their business probably isn't as successful as they're telling people it is on Instagram. Yeah. That's the, the, using, that's the, the, using, right? using the highlight reel. Yeah. Big time. You know what? Yeah. Um, so Phil, where can people find out about yourself on Instagram and where can people find out about your courses? Uh, Instagram is my personal Instagram is at the PT coach, uh, which obviously says what it does on the tin. And, uh, and at the Advanced Coaching Academy. No, at Advanced Coaching Academy, sorry. I added the, the there. So you'll find both those Instagram handles. They're the ones that we mostly uh, move things through. Obviously, you've got the website, advancedcoachingacademy.com, uh, which you'll find out all about our courses and things like that. But again, feel free to drop me a DM or a message. You can message through the website if you have any questions about the courses or what we do. And and yeah, go from there. But uh, yeah, those, those are my two main channels. I do have linkedin and uh twitter and everything else that everything else but, but yeah instagram's the main i'm going to put those links into the bio guys so if you're interested in looking at the course i highly encourage it because phil knows the shit like it's back of his hand and i'm so grateful to have him on today so thank you so much for coming on phil you've been an absolute star and i hope Appreciate you guys have taken something out of it if you enjoyed it guys please do tag the two of us up on your story and thank you very much phil no worries